Hello everyone, and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host, Tony, and today we're going to look at Toonstruck, a third-person point-and-click adventure game developed by Burst Studios and published by Virgin Interactive Entertainment back in 1996 for the Microsoft DOS computer platform. We're going to be talking about Toonstruck in just a couple minutes, but first, as is usual, just a little bit of housekeeping up front. This is episode number 44. I am excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about classic games and technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt, and we have a Discord server with the link in the show notes. Discord is probably the best way to interact with me and the rest of the community. It's really a great spot to have all sorts of discussions. We've been having a lot of fun out there, so I do encourage you all to join the discussion if you feel so inclined. I'd also like to mention that starting in August, so we're around a week away, Now, starting in August, we will be launching our Patreon for the podcast, so definitely keep an eye out for that. Not quite ready to be published yet, but I'll have more information in next week's episode about how you can get engaged there and what perks come along with the Patreon. No pressure at all. This podcast will remain absolutely free and will still follow the same format and structure that everybody has come to expect from the podcast. But for those of you who want just a little bit extra, the Patreon will be available to hopefully fulfill that need. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to take a brief moment to go over the anatomy of an episode because, for the most part, all of our episodes follow a very similar format and structure. We will always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, where does it sit in the overall history of video and computer games, and then we do a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a quantitative value or a star ranking or anything like that, but we do talk about every single game from several different perspectives. We look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one. Playability and controls and overall feel. What does it feel like to play the game today versus when it may have been released 20, 30, maybe even 40 plus years ago? And we do all of that to reach a verdict as far as how well the game holds up today. And to do that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. You should still play it today. It has not aged at all. It is like a fine wine. It is just as good today as when it was released. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are still really good games. They're not quite Pantheon level, but... You should probably still play them, at least I recommend you to play them, and you will most likely have a good time, especially if you have nostalgia for the game in question, or you enjoy the genre in which the game lives, you are almost guaranteed to have a good time. These are still really worthwhile experiences, and I still highly recommend that you give them a go today. Beyond the Golden Oldies, we reach our Mediocre Mentions. This is where we start getting into the realm of games that I cannot broadly recommend to the general population. They may have either aged a bit, might have had a couple of issues to begin with. 
you could still have a good time. These are not irredeemable experiences, especially if you enjoy the genre in which the game lives. Go ahead if you want, give it a go, and you may actually have a good time. But I cannot recommend these games to the majority of the population. And beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these titles today. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Toonstruck. Toonstruck is a third-person point-and-click adventure game developed by Burst Studios and published by Virgin Interactive Entertainment, released in 1996 for the Microsoft DOS computer platform. Before we can talk about Toonstruck, we have to take a step back to talk about the point-and-click adventure game genre in general. So for those of you who may not know, adventure games are one of my favorite game types in all of computer and video games. And interestingly, several years ago, I had hosted a podcast devoted exclusively to the adventure game genre. So for me, anytime we have a chance to talk about adventure games is just nostalgic. Not only did I play a ton of adventure games when I was young, but it's also somewhat of a return to a period of my podcasting life where literally all I talked about were adventure games. Anyway, for the purposes of this podcast, I don't want to dive deep into the history of adventure games, but I do want to talk in general terms about the adventure game genre and what it looked like by the time the early 90s rolled around. Longtime listeners may recall a couple of prior episodes where we touched upon this, but for those who may be new or might need a refresher, the adventure game scene from the 80s through a good chunk of the 90s were pretty much dominated by two companies, Sierra Online and LucasArts, each of whom had a very different take on what an adventure game should be. For Sierra, even from their earliest titles back when they were known as online systems, an adventure game was an opportunity to challenge the player, oftentimes both from an intellectual viewpoint as well as simply from the perspective of the sheer number of pitfalls, hazards, and dead ends built into their titles. This focus on challenge was born directly from Roberta Williams' most immediate influence, the text-based game Colossal Cave Adventure, which was Williams' first exposure to computer games back in the later 1970s. As soon as she sat down at the computer and typed her first verb command into the terminal, she was hooked, and she quickly became obsessed with exploring every nook and cranny of the massive cave system built into the game, uncovering all of its secrets and, as was the case for many games of the time, figuring out what to do through trial and error rather than a streamlined, user-friendly kind of experience. The game was challenging, and it was in some ways unfair, but it was also something that Williams loved. So, when the time came for Roberta to design her own game, she knew she wanted to create something in a similar vein to Colossal Cave Adventure, a game that wouldn't hold the player's hand and would instead reward perseverance and problem-solving over simply providing a more casual arcade-like experience. 
This general principle would become the framework of the entire company, as throughout the 80s and 90s, Sierra would employ a number of designers who would deliver difficult but rewarding experiences to players around the world. For the most part, these experiences tended to veer more towards realism and seriousness rather than comedy, and generally speaking, when you picked up a Sierra title, you knew you were in for a challenging experience. By contrast, the team at LucasArts, which was George Lucas's interactive entertainment company, took a different approach in developing their adventure titles. Rather than reveling in killing their players for simply exploring the game's world, the team at LucasArts decided to create experiences where it was almost impossible to get locked into a dead-end state, or to die, instead allowing players to explore whimsical, oftentimes cartoon-like settings filled with comedy and parody, as opposed to the seriousness of many Sierra titles. For every police quest where you're chasing down a killer on the loose, there was a monkey island where the closest you get to violence involved slinging insults at your opponent. The two companies were incredibly prolific throughout the 80s and into the 90s, and the distinct difference in their approach to design led to a little bit of a divide between the adventure game playing population. I even saw this in my own house. I was a Sierra kid, through and through, while my brother preferred the more comical and less inherently deadly LucasArts adventures. That's not to say that gamers didn't have an appreciation for both companies and their titles, but generally speaking, people tended to gravitate towards one a bit more than the other. So while Sierra and LucasArts were undoubtedly the biggest adventure game developers out there, there were obviously other companies that were experimenting with their own adventure game designs in the hopes of grabbing a piece of the market. One of those companies, and a company that we've talked about a little bit before, was Virgin Interactive Entertainment. For those who have listened to the podcast for a while, you may recall that Virgin Interactive was one of the bigger video game publishers of the time, with many of their releases focused on licensed properties like Terminator, Robocop, and various Disney characters and movies. That's not to say that the company shied away from other titles, though, and in early 1991, they had just heard a pitch for a potential adventure title from two relatively new employees, Rob Landeros and LucasArts alumnus Graham Devine. Devine and Landeros had an idea for a new kind of adventure game, something very different than the traditional LucasArts and Sierra titles that were prevalent in the market. Their title would place the player in a haunted mansion, where he or she would need to navigate through the house using an entirely first-person perspective. Along the way, and in order to eventually escape, the player would need to solve a number of logic-based puzzles while learning more about the ghostly inhabitants of the mansion, all told through glorious early 90s full-motion video sequences. Some of you may have guessed that Divine's and Landorus's idea would eventually evolve into The Seventh Guest, which was a highly influential and successful puzzle adventure game released in 1993. It ended up being so popular that it almost single-handedly sold CD-ROM technology as a must-have for the future of computer gaming. And I say almost single-handedly, because the other must-have game that made CD-ROMs a household thing was Myst, which was a similarly-styled adventure game by Cyan Studios. Between Seventh Guest and Myst, the game industry would be changed forever, and with the introduction of highly advanced, at least for the time, pre-rendered graphics and full-motion video, gamers were quickly becoming more immersed in their games than ever before. 
Seventh Guest was a huge success for Virgin Interactive and would sell over 2 million copies for the company. Despite that success, though, things weren't all rosy at Virgin. Like we mentioned, Virgin was primarily a game publisher rather than a game developer. While they did have some internally developed titles, most of those games were really created by the equivalent of subsidiary development companies who were bankrolled by Virgin, but not directly part of the broader company. Seventh Guest, in fact, was one of those titles developed by a pseudo-subsidiary company. While Divine and Landros began by being employed by Virgin, they were told to create their own company before launching development on Seventh Guest, which is what led to the creation of the company Trilobite. Outside of that kind of arrangement, though, Virgin did maintain a small internal development staff, with its star designer and programmer being David Perry, who at the time was most famous for the Sega Genesis version of Aladdin and its revolutionary approach to integrating hand-drawn Disney animation into an actual playable game. Right around the time Seventh Guest was nearing completion, David Perry and his team decided to leave Virgin Interactive and start their own company, Shiny Entertainment, which left Virgin Interactive with a bit of a gap in their internal development team. Virgin recognized that they needed to fill the hole left by Perry's departure, so they decided to stand up a new development company that would operate independently, similar to Trilobite, but would be owned solely by Virgin. That company would be named Burst Studios and would be led by two industry veterans, Chris Yates from Westwood Studios and Neil Young, who had previously worked at Probe Software alongside David Perry. With Yates and Young in place, the studio began to bring on additional staff, eventually building out a team that was comprised almost exclusively of game designers, programmers, artists, and others who had a significant amount of game industry experience. In short, Burst Studios was designed to be a veteran game developer, and Virgin had high hopes for the company. As the team at Burst Studios sat down to begin thinking about what their first title was going to be, they came to a crossroads. They knew they wanted to create something state-of-the-art, and they had access to both high-end industry talent as well as high-end development tools to make that happen. Virgin, similarly, wanted to really push the envelope of what would be possible from a technological perspective. They had just released Seventh Guest, and while that title would be an early showcase for CD-ROMs, Virgin was looking to Burst Studios to create the next must-have experience for the rapidly expanding technology. With that general desire in place, the team started to brainstorm ideas. Relatively early on, it was decided that the game they were going to create would be an adventure title, and like we talked about, there were really three overall adventure game styles at this point to choose from. You had the mercilessly challenging Sierra Online games, the comedic cartoon experiences of LucasArts, and now the first-person puzzle stylings of Virgin's own Seventh Guest and, of course, Cyan Studios Mist. But the team didn't want to make any decision about the style of the game until they understood what the game would actually be about. And in order to determine that, Burst Studios ended up taking inspiration from Hollywood. So at this point, we have to take a step back and look at an incredibly popular and successful film released back in 1988 that Disney produced Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Who Framed Roger Rabbit's story was set in 1940s-era Hollywood, in a world where cartoon characters and real people worked side-by-side and lived in the same world. While we won't dive deep into the specific plot points of the film today, 
The movie was, from a technological perspective, an absolute marvel, as it combined real-world locations and filmed actors with hand-drawn animated characters to create what can only be described as a seamless, unified world where you really believed that cartoons and actors were inhabiting the same space and interacting with each other directly. This, of course, wasn't true in reality, but the movie magic at play here was incredible. When Bob Hoskins and Roger Rabbit shared screen time, it almost felt like an actual buddy cop kind of relationship, despite the fact that Bob Hoskins was a real-world detective and Roger Rabbit was, well, a cartoon rabbit. Similarly, when Christopher Lloyd tortured an innocent tune by dipping them into a vat of acid-like liquid, you felt bad for the hand-drawn character, and it really looked like Lloyd was interacting with another person, so to speak, on the screen, as opposed to a bunch of composited video shots and green screen imagery. It was all stunning. As you can probably guess, I love Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And interestingly, so did the team at Burst Studios, who decided that their first game would be a sort of reverse take on the film. Rather than having cartoons inhabit real-world locations, what if you took a real person and interjected them into a purely cartoon world? That, in a nutshell, would form the basis of the game that would eventually be known as Toonstruck. With development starting in October of 1993, Early versions of the game would present a LucasArts-styled comedic adventure narrative in which the game world was slowly being drained of its color as the result of a villain's evil doing. And this world, which once again would be inhabited entirely by cartoon characters, would need to be saved by you, the player. In this version of the title, known internally as Trouble in Toonland, the player would control a young boy who for some reason had been sucked into the cartoon world, and he would need to figure out why the world was losing its color, solving puzzles, and interacting with various characters along the way, until finally he'd confront the nefarious villain responsible for the chromatic capers plaguing the world to put an end to his reign of black and white terror. This narrative, however, would be revised several times over the course of the months that followed, and what started as a kid-friendly adventure starring a young boy attempting to restore color to a cartoon world would morph into a more mature-themed comedic adventure title, starring instead a middle-aged cartoonist and animator named Drew Blank, who, after a night of trying to rework a popular cartoon series at the behest of his overbearing boss, would be sucked into the cartoon world of his own creation, encountering the characters he had previously given life to. The major conceit here was that Drew was in his creation's world now, a cartoon landscape, and as such, once in that world, cartoon logic applied. Meaning, the rulebook would effectively be thrown out the window, leading to zany situations that would feel right at home on an episode of Tom and Jerry, which, for those who may not know, was a popular cartoon from the 1960s. By the way, when I mentioned that the game began to take shape as a more mature-themed title, I really mean it. In fact, the lead designer, Richard Hare, is on record as saying that one of his overall goals was to make sure that every single player at some point would be shocked by the game's humor. And I can tell you from personal experience that the game's designers did in fact achieve that goal, at least based on my own personal experience. My favorite scene was probably the one that involved a dominatrix sheep and a bondage-obsessed cow who constantly asks her bad friend to whip her cream. Yeah, that actually happens in this game. Anyway, 
With the narrative structure and overall themes beginning to fall into place, the team began to create the framework for the game, which, like I mentioned, would mimic the traditional LucasArts style of adventure game. Originally, the game designers attempted to create their own engine for the game, similar in many ways to the venerable Scum engine utilized by Lucas titles. But that technology would shift early on, with the game eventually using the same engine as Westwood's Legend of Corandia, Malcolm's Revenge, which was a different point-and-click adventure published by Virgin Interactive back in 1994. With that engine in place, work continued on creating all of the various aspects of the game, including the overall interface and controls, which followed a streamlined approach to point-and-click adventure gaming. Rather than having a ton of different actions available to the player, the game would be designed with two basic controls in place. By right-clicking, you could learn more about an object, which was effectively the game's look command in adventure game parlance, while the left-click action would, instead, change based on the context of the hotspot that you were hovering over. So, if you're mousing over a character, the icon in action would turn into a talk option. If you're mousing over a usable object, the icon in action would turn into a use option, and so on and so on and so on. This integration of common adventure game commands into a more context-driven approach served to streamline the experience and provide first-time players with an easier inroad into the game, as Toonstruct was being designed to appeal to a broad audience, not just adventure game aficionados. Speaking of appealing to a broad audience, Burst Studios took great efforts to make their game feel not just like a game, but to appear to be an actual classic cartoon caper, complete with animation stylings, voice acting, music, and settings that were ripped straight out of cartoons created by animation legends like Walt Disney, Hanna-Barbera, and Warner Brothers. Reminiscent once again to Who Framed Roger Rabbit and its 1940s setting, Toonstruck would utilize an animation style that directly referenced similar 1940s and 1950s cartoons, intentionally using hand-drawn imagery and using actual paper and pencil to draw characters and scenes as opposed to the more advanced computer-generated imagery available at the time. That served to evoke the feeling that you were actually playing a classic cartoon as opposed to simply playing a game. By the end of development, over 11,000 distinct hand-drawn animations would be created for the game, with computers only being used to color the scenes and characters. Everything else was drawn by hand on paper, similar to the way classic cartoons had been created. In fact, almost the entire game is effectively a cartoon, as the only non-cartoon elements are the actual filmed sequences, including the player character, all of which would be presented in full motion video goodness. And here, the team at Burst Studios scored another win, as they were able to cast Christopher Lloyd as the main character Drew Blank. Lloyd, like we mentioned, had previously played the main villain in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, so he was very familiar with working in a green screen environment where his co-stars were animated rather than living. The team at Burst Studios recorded Lloyd in front of a green screen using an eight-camera system that was designed to capture his performance at every angle, allowing for the full-motion video images to be scaled perfectly regardless of what actions the player may take. Interestingly, Christopher Lloyd's costume and overall visual style was designed in such a way as to facilitate this scaling and integration into the game world, with the design attempting to maximize symmetry and simplicity. As an example... The jacket that Lloyd wears throughout the game has no buttons, an intentional decision designed to make it easier to maintain a consistent look for the character. 
Similarly, Lloyd's hair would be brushed back and parted in the middle, once again to make it easier to scale the character and avoid issues that could crop up with more distinct, unsymmetrical features and the integration into the game's world. Eventually, all of the video sequences, which apparently equated to hundreds of hours of live performance, were then ingested into powerful workstations to perform post-production work, as well as ensure that the colors and lighting from the background images were synchronized with the recorded video. In fact, the team actually recorded much more content than they ended up using in the game, mainly because the team had a great deal of creative freedom to create the game that best mapped their overarching vision, which meant pretty much any idea they had that might equate to a fun player experience was recorded and designed to be a part of the game. This all worked great, until the game started to run behind schedule and over budget, at which point Virgin Interactive stepped in and mandated the game to be cut in half, with all of the additional video and animated sequences being set aside for an eventual sequel. More on that in just a little bit. Other than the creativity of the Burst Studios team, one of the other reasons for the game's rising budget was the fact that they didn't want to just create a game with fully voiced characters. They wanted to create a game with professional-level, impeccable-quality voice-acted characters. And here, the team spared no expense, bringing in a bevy of well-known voice actors like Dan Castellanata of Homer Simpson fame, Tim Carey, Dom DeLuise, and David Ogden Steers, just to name a few— along with various other actors who had direct experience with providing voices to a variety of cartoon characters. Turning our attention to music, here once again the team took inspiration from the cartoons of the past. For those who may be unaware, many cartoons from the 1930s through around the 1960s used a variety of classical music for their background tracks. Not to say that there wasn't specific music composed for those cartoons, but a lot of the interludes and main themes were in fact classical compositions. Toonstruck, in an effort once again to mimic the style of classic cartoons, did the same exact thing, with various public domain classical music being included in the game to go along with the music that would be composed specifically for the title. Even sound effects from prior cartoons were leveraged to further enhance that classic animation feeling. As you might imagine, Toonstruck was quickly becoming, effectively, a love letter to the golden era of cartoon animation. Eventually, all of the various elements of the game would come together into an integrated package and Toonstruck would release for the Microsoft DOS computer platform in late October 1996, which was a full year beyond its original release date. Critics, upon receiving the title, generally liked what they saw, with most declaring that the title was a worthy successor to the LucasArts classics like Day of the Tentacle and Monkey Island. Many praised the game's voice acting, graphics, animation, and seamless integration of full-motion video content and animated imagery, while others lauded the game's well-designed puzzles and overall gameplay structure. While the game wouldn't be quite universally praised, most people agreed this was a worthwhile experience. The only issue was, Toonstruck released in late 1996, and at this point, we were well beyond the point where adventure games were considered a popular genre. Recall our discussion earlier about the major adventure game developers of the 80s and early 90s, primarily LucasArts and Sierra. As the later 90s approached, many gamers shifted their focus to more fast-paced, action-driven experiences like the exploding first-person shooter genre, as well as newer graphics-rich titles supported by the spread of 3D accelerator technology. A two-dimensional, traditional point-and-click adventure title 
by a relatively small scale adventure game developer was always going to have a tough time in the game industry of the time. And ultimately, Toonstruck failed to live up to sales expectations, only selling 150,000 copies after release. This wasn't an insignificant number, but it didn't result in much, if any, profit compared to the overall budget for the title, which had ballooned to around $8 million in 1996 dollars, which is approximately $13 million if adjusted for inflation. Beyond releasing the game in a genre that was falling in popularity, there were several other reasons various individuals have noted as being potential causes for the less-than-stellar sales of the title. One of those reasons, offered up by the development team, was a failure in terms of marketing the title. Like we mentioned before, Toonstruck is a game that is not afraid to tackle more mature themes, and despite being a cartoon-driven experience, this is decidedly not a kid's game. But the game wasn't really marketed as a more adult title, and even the packaging focused on the more over-the-top cartoon-esque nature of the gameplay, which as designed, made it seem more like a children's game. The thing is, though, children of the time weren't really interested in point-and-click adventure games, which honestly is probably a blessing in disguise in this case, given the mature subject matter. Many of the adults of the time, many of which had grown up playing adventure titles of the 80s, didn't realize that Toonstruck was more geared towards them as opposed to their children, and this led to a perfect storm kind of situation, which definitely resulted in lower sales than it could have achieved. Another potential cause given by the development team was related to the compromises that had to be made to effectively cut the game in half given the schedule and budget issues the team was facing. Now, I will say, this one feels to me a little bit like revisionist history, as the general game-playing public likely didn't know that they were only getting half of what the team originally envisioned. And while we'll talk about my opinion of the game in a little bit, I honestly don't feel like we were shortchanged with the content that was provided. It's not like it felt like a lesser title, and its length actually felt kind of appropriate. Regardless of the reason for the game's lower sales figures, though, the fact remains, it was a commercial disappointment for Virgin Interactive, and that overall disappointment led the company to cancel any plans for actually releasing the proposed sequel, which would have included the second half of the game we've just been talking about. The story doesn't end there, though, as Keith Aram, the audio director and composer for the game, has been working for the last 15 years to try to gather enough support to justify a remastered version of the title, which would restore the cut content, releasing the game as a truly definitive edition of the experience. This effort unfortunately seems stuck in purgatory at the moment, as trying to acquire all of the different intellectual property rights has proven to be challenging. That hasn't stopped fans from trying to do the work themselves, though, and while I've heard that there is a fan-made version of the restored content somewhere, I haven't personally played it or watched the videos of the fan-made version. For the rest of the population who want to experience the original title, there is good news, as the game was released on both GOG and Steam in recent years, with the GOG version even including a port to both Mac and Linux-based platforms. I did test out the Steam version of the title, and I can affirm that it performs exactly as you would expect. Toonstruck is a game that has both flown under the radar a bit, as well as received a fair amount of acclaim over its lifetime, which makes it somewhat unique as an underappreciated gem in computer and adventure gaming. Some publications have even gone so far as to nominate Toonstruck as one of the best games ever created, yet today, you don't really hear about it all that much. 
From my perspective, that's definitely a shame, as Toonstruck is one of the more intriguing adventure titles I've played in recent memory. As a truly interactive cartoon, it provides an adventure game experience that, while following pretty closely to other LucasArts-styled efforts, still forges its own path. With a unique setting, characters, story, and concept, Toonstruck is one of those titles that should not be relegated to a forgotten moment in history. While its impact and overall reach is limited, that doesn't in any way discredit what it did accomplish, which is the delivery of a quality experience that any true adventure aficionados owe it to themselves to check out. Despite being inspired by LucasArts, it never quite lives up to the success of that company's titles, but as its own standalone cartoon tale, it is definitely an experience that deserves to be recognized and remembered. now going to shift to start talking about what it feels like to play the game today versus when it was released oh almost 30 years ago so just to refresh everybody's memory toonstruck is a third person point and click adventure title so let's talk about what that means generally speaking toonstruck is pretty much a stereotypical prototypical third person point and click adventure title You navigate around the game world using exclusively your mouse. Now, there are a few differences here, though. There's no map, which is unlike a lot of other adventure titles. A lot of times in adventure games, you will have a map that helps you navigate to far-off locations. A lot of times it, it might be a map of a city, like what you might see in Gabriel Knight's Sins of the Fathers, or it might be a map of an island, like what you might see in The Secret of Monkey Island. In Toonstruck, No map at all. Every place you need to go, you have to actually walk to yourself. But I will say, the cool thing about Toonstruck is that everything is connected, at least for the most part. And the game is kind of divided into two parts. And I'm not going to get into any sort of spoilers, just in case anybody wants to play it. But the first part of the game, everything is interconnected. In the second part of the game, everything is interconnected. But there is a gap between the first part and the second part because of narrative reasons. And once again, I'm not going to get into that because of potential spoilers. But suffice it to say that as you navigate around the game world, it really does feel like you're walking around a true world because every movement from screen to screen feels very nicely integrated. As you're navigating around the world, You control a digitized version of Christopher Lloyd, and you perform all of the traditional kinds of adventure game shenanigans that you would expect. That includes solving puzzles, combining inventory items to make new items, talking to characters, and all of that good stuff. There are two unique aspects to the game, though, that serve to shake up the overall experience. One of those things, one of those aspects of the game that is unique and different is the fact that you are existing in a cartoon world, which means throughout the entire game, cartoon logic applies. So as an example, 
If you see a pepper trapped behind a spiky plant, you're not simply going to get a pair of shears and cut down the spiky branches. You need to go through a bunch of steps to acquire a deadly poison using a golden watering can that you had to steal from a trophy room, but only after a friendly sheep and cow get turned into a dominatrix and sub-pair who had turned their former horse companion into a source of glue. Actually, you know what? That kind of just sounds like straight-up adventure game logic, but trust me, it feels more cartoon-like when you're actually playing the game. Anyway, the second aspect of the game that is different than many other adventure titles is that you have a nearly constant companion character who you can both interact with as well as use as potential solutions to various puzzles. That companion, whose name is Flux Wildly, also takes part in conversations that you have with other characters and is normally a source of comedic relief throughout the adventure. It's also voiced by Dan Castellanato, who does a thoroughly impressive job with the role. Now, this is not the only adventure title that utilizes a sidekick kind of character that tags along with you, but I will say that it was one of the better ones as far as integrating the sidekick into the rest of the game, both from a puzzle perspective, as well as just the overall interactions and conversations and interjections that your sidekick has as you're having dialogue with other characters. The dialogue in the game, by the way, is also a bit unique. When you start talking to a new character, you're presented with two icons, an ice cube and a hand in the stop pose, which basically means end the conversation. The ice cube is meant to represent the action of breaking the ice, which basically serves as a springboard for any other dialogue choices that may follow, all of which get added as options to discuss once they arise in conversation. And those dialogue options are handled via graphical icons rather than any sort of long list of topics. And each dialogue is a very direct affair. You're not going to be asking every single character about every single clue or object that you've discovered in the game. The game just simply doesn't allow that to happen. I don't think, actually now that I'm thinking about it, I don't think there was a single instance where a character said... I don't know anything about that, or we're one of the various versions of that phrase. Because a lot of times you're playing these adventure games, and you have a laundry list of topics. And I know the way I play adventure games. If there is a topic available to me to ask another character about, I am going to ask them whether it's related to something they should know about or not. And oftentimes they'll come back with a generic, I don't know anything about that, kind of response. In Toonstruck, there is none of that, because you can only ask characters about things that the game tells you they know about, and it was refreshing. At the same time, it was kind of streamlined, which is both good and bad. Good in that it made the game just flow really nicely, but bad in that it removed just a little bit of player agency because it wasn't like you could pick from all these random topics and try to piece together your own story or clues. It was really kind of handed to you a little bit more directly, which once again was fine, just a little bit different than the traditional adventure game experience. Now, I had just mentioned that the game was a very direct affair, and truthfully, the entire game can be looked at as being a very directed kind of experience. There is very little fluff here. Whereas many adventure games have a degree of content that's not really needed for the core experience of playing the game, in Toonstruck, Nearly everything is a required part of your journey. That's not to say that the game is linear. 
And in fact, there are a number of multi-part puzzles that can be tackled in a variety of ways and sequences, which actually makes the game fairly open-ended. Even the core quest of the first part of the game, which includes finding the pieces needed to build a cutifier contraption, it all just reflects the open nature of the gameplay, or the open-ended nature of the gameplay. It's not like you have to find object one before you find object two. You can find the objects in pretty much any order, and your ability to find those objects is dependent upon your ability to solve all of the different sub-puzzles that allow you to eventually reach those eventual conclusions. So it is very open-ended. The way it works is you're basically given that quest to collect those 12 different items, and the game never tells you what those items are, by the way. So the way this works, I'm just going to go into it real quick because I thought it was pretty ingenious. The game, the game's central premise for the first part of the game is that there's a, an evil being who is using an, a device known as the Malevolator to basically destroy the cartoon world. It turns everything in the game either drab or just simply evil. And your job is to build a cutifier, which effectively is the opposite of the Malevolator. It's supposed to restore the world to its former cutesy beauty kind of state. And you're not told what objects you need. You're, they're told that you need 12 distinct objects. And you're told that you need the opposite of the objects for the Malevolator. So early in the game, you get a set of blueprints. And the blueprints show you how the Malevolator was created. And it has a bunch of objects around in a circle. And you're basically told that you have to get the 12 opposite objects of whatever was in the Malevolator. So not to go into like spoiler territory, but let's say one of the objects was uh, salt, just as an example. Well, you would probably want to find pepper because pepper is the opposite of salt, so to speak. So that's kind of the way that first quest goes. But the game never tells you how to do that. It doesn't tell you where to go. It basically opens up this game world and you just start talking to characters and interacting with the game and you have to try to figure out how to find those things. And even after you find those objects, you're never told that the item that you receive is actually part of your main quest. It's up to you to figure it out. And I can tell you from personal experience that sometimes you're looking at all these objects in your inventory and you look at them and you're kind of thinking, ah, I don't know what the heck this item is going to be used for. I don't even I don't even know how it applies to the game. There's got to be some puzzle out there that I'm not finding or something like that. And then you go back and you look at the Malevolator diagram and you kind of apply a little bit of lateral thinking and some interesting game logic. And you look at it and, and then you discover, wait a second, that object is actually one of the opposite items for the creation of the cutifier to eliminate the malevolator. And you didn't even think about it at the time because it just wasn't overtly obvious, which I thought was awesome because it kind of gave you that aha moment. And as you guys know, if you've listened to me for a while, I love the aha moment that happens in a really good adventure game with really good puzzles. Anyway, just a mild tangent there because I thought it was, was really well done. But for the most part, Toonstruck is pretty much as open-ended and multi-directional as any adventure game title can be. That first quest that I was just talking about is just one example, and the rest of the game is filled with them. It just does all of that without any sort of fluff or any unnecessary components. You're not going to get a ton of extended lore. You're not going to get a ton of unnecessary hotspots. It is just the game. 
and that translates into an experience that is streamlined yet chock full of content, which I'm guessing many adventure gamers are going to enjoy. Before we get into the more specific aspects of the game, like the graphics and the sound and the music, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box. I love learning about how different companies marketed their titles for trying to sell it on the store shelves. And around this time in the mid 90s, you were starting to get a little bit more information around different games that were coming out. We still didn't really have the internet or YouTube, certainly as far as gameplay videos, but we did have quite a bit of media that we were able to consume to tell us what games were about. Regardless, when we were in a video game or computer game store, a lot of times your reasoning for buying something was based on what the box looked like. And like we talked about a little bit earlier, Toonstruck was really kind of marketed strangely in that it didn't really hit their target demographic of the more mature kinds of gamers. It was almost like it was marketed more towards children, even though it was a mature title. So anyway, for Toonstruck, the back of the box says, As Drew Blank, animator of the Fluffy Fluffy Bun Bun Show, your life hasn't turned out exactly as planned. Your boss has it in for you. Your creativity's left town on you. And just when you think it can't get much worse, it does. A freak accident involving electronics, don't ask, spins you headfirst into the whacked out and not so warm and fuzzy world of your own cartoon creations. To get home, you'll need to unravel the secrets of these loony lands before they unravel you. Outsmart demented clowns, outshock cross-dressing livestock, and outwit a diabolical count named Nefarious. It's a mind-reeling tunatopia that'll have you acting so depraved you might even shock yourself. Send someone an exploding turkey, watch Spike the Clown torture balloon animals, and if you've got any energy left, try preventing an all-out war between the cartoon forces of good and evil. Word to the wise, better pack an anvil. And then there are some screenshots that make the game look awesome because they have full motion video sequences interspersed with cartoon visuals. And then some bullets about various features of the game, such as two CDs jam-packed full of hilarious adventure gameplay and a whole world of bizarre characters. Starring Christopher Lloyd and featuring the vocal talents of Tim Carey, Dan Castellanato, who is TV's Homer Simpson, Dom DeLuise, and gold-throated artists featured in Aladdin, Animaniacs, and more. Over 40,000 frames of animation and over 75 unique locations crammed full of puzzles and integration of live-action video and traditional animation unlike anything ever experienced. So I will say that the box definitely felt a little bit more mature than what I think the uh, developers and various teams were saying, that they were kind of complaining, oh, it wasn't really marketed the right way. Uh, reading the back of the box just now, I could see how it was kind of marketed a little bit more mature. But I will say that the front of the box did not get that across. So you have to actually flip that box over to be able to see, oh yeah, this is not a kid's game. It might be something for an adult. Anyway, I thought the box was actually done pretty well. I certainly would have picked up that game if I saw it at the time. And I can't recall, I don't believe I ever bought Toonstruck back when I was younger. I don't think I bought it when it was originally released. I do have it in my collection today, but I do not believe I actually purchased it back in 1996. 
Anyway, let's move on and start talking about the more specific aspects of the game. We're going to start by talking about the graphics. So the game's graphics, which are primarily cartoon visuals, are simply stunning. Not necessarily from the perspective of technologically advanced computer graphics, but more from the perspective of perfectly emulating their inspiration, which were classic cartoons and animations from the 30s, 40s, and 50s. There wasn't a single screen that went by where I didn't think, hey, this really does look like a cartoon, and the various animations included throughout the game had a decidedly hand-drawn and partially low-fidelity feel to them. Let me explain what I mean. Cartoons from the mid-1900s mostly had a very distinct look and feel to them. They felt handmade, which meant colors weren't exactly perfect, and animations weren't always super smooth but you could always tell what the artist's vision was behind the character or scene or environment, and sometimes they even approached a painterly kind of quality. This is exactly what you see when you play Toonstruck. There was intention behind not using the technology of the day to create a more high-definition, so to speak, version of the visuals. The development team wanted to emulate classic cartoons, and they succeeded with flying colors. This overall care and attention applies to every single background screen in the game, as well as the whole world, which is effectively a living, breathing cartoon. There are even some background animations included in each screen that, while subtle, serve to further your suspension of disbelief that you are in fact inhabiting a cartoon world. As far as actual character and item designs go, all of them are pretty much top-notch, and every element in the game both feels unified as well as distinct from one another. It is a tricky balance, but something I believe the team executed flawlessly. Oh, and by the way, the full-motion video sequences, which you guys know I love, they all looked pretty good too. They weren't high-definition, obviously, but it was definitely a higher-quality FMV experience than many games of the time. I also particularly enjoyed any cutscene that included composited real-world actors and cartoon characters. It truly felt like a slightly more twisted Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and I loved it. Moving on to the sound and music, the music in the game is absolutely perfect. Literally, no complaints. And you might not think that using a bunch of public domain classical music could possibly make for an engaging soundtrack, but considering this was literally the way many classic cartoon soundtracks were created, this is actually an ingenious way of selecting the music for this title. Sound effects, similarly, were all perfectly executed for the cartoon situations you'd find yourself in. Honestly, it's tough to really say anything here, because the blending of music and sound effects, along with the situations on the screen, are simply excellent. One other aspect of the audio I do want to touch upon in more depth, though, is the voice acting. And we've talked about titles before that have hired professional voice actors or even Hollywood talent to take part in various games. Sometimes that stuff kind of works, but other times even professional talent sounds just a bit off, at least when we're talking about games from the mid-90s. Toonstruck has a long list of well-known voice and Hollywood actors, so you might be wondering whether those talents combine together to form a cohesive whole. Well, I'm here to tell you that, from my perspective, the voice acting in this game, which, remember, is designed as a cartoon, 
is quite possibly some of the best voice acting I have ever heard in a video game. Seriously, every single voice is absolutely spot-on perfect, from the gravelly bass of a rough-and-tumble bowling alley proprietor to the excessively saccharine, bubbly, high-pitched sounds of a bunny who believes she's just the cutest thing ever to the smooth baritone of the big bad wolf. Every single character is perfect. I am not being hyperbolic. The acting here is superb. My only complaint, and it is a super small one, is that Christopher Lloyd can sometimes very slightly appear a bit out of touch with the scene that's playing out. This might just be a perception thing, because I'm used to Christopher Lloyd playing over-the-top characters like Doc Brown or Uncle Fester, and in Toonstruck, he's playing a much more down-to-earth kind of character. I'm willing to let this one slide and chalk it up to my own perspective as opposed to a true fault with the game, simply because the rest of the experience is outstanding. So moving on to the narrative and story. Toonstruck is a story about Drew Blank, a cartoonist who has worked on several well-regarded animated shows, with one, the Fluffy Fluffy Bun Bun Show, being his standout hit. One day, his boss calls Drew into his office and tells him that they need to reinvigorate the show, and his idea is to create a new Fluffy Fluffy Bun Bun Show with even more fluffy rabbits. Drew goes back to his desk to figure out how to turn around this unreasonable request by the next morning, only to fall asleep due to lack of inspiration. He eventually wakes up at 4 a.m. in the morning and, noticing his show is playing on an office television, picks up the remote control to turn it off, only to instead be sucked into the cartoon world of Fluffy Fluffy Bun Bun, where he discovers that an evil mastermind, Count Nefarious, is slowly but surely destroying the world. Drew is asked to save the world and stop Nefarious' schemes, so he sets out to begin figuring out how to do that, with trusty sidekick Flux Wildly in tow. Along the way, he encounters a number of different characters, puzzles, cartoon situations, and even some double-crossing, all leading eventually to a confrontation with Nefarious himself. Now, I've got to say, this story works really well within the context of the game and the game's cartoon world. I absolutely enjoyed the overarching story, though from my perspective, the best part of the narrative isn't necessarily the formal story arc. Instead, I think the best part of the narrative and the game's writing exists in the independent scenes that you encounter throughout the game. For anyone who hasn't played the game, take my word for it, the writing and the characters in this game are so good, and I legitimately laughed out loud several times while playing the game. This is one of those rare experiences where a game and its writing are actually funny, not just ha-ha game funny. And that's not to say that the narrative doesn't come together into a cohesive whole, because it does, and it's actually very fulfilling once you figure out how all of the different individual items you've been collecting and puzzles you've been solving come together to allow you to accomplish your quest, or at least the first part of your quest. Overall, the game just has a really solid story, which provides a strong backdrop for the entire game. The individual character interactions, dialogues, and puzzles, those are all gold. So moving on to the playability and controls, overall, the controls here are pretty much exactly what you would expect from a point-and-click adventure title, in that every action you take is driven by your mouse. Like we talked about briefly before, 
If you right-click, you can learn more about any hotspot or object that you're clicking on, and if you left-click, the game will default to the most common action that corresponds to the item or hotspot you've selected. There's really not much to talk about here, as the controls are simply standard for the adventure game genre, and they all feel fine. From a playability perspective, the game feels and plays like any modern or retro adventure title, which is a good thing from my perspective. What I do want to talk about in more depth, however, are the puzzles in the game. And as many adventure gamers know, most adventure games will live and die by the quality of their puzzles. Whether inventory-driven, environmental, or dialogue-focused, puzzles in adventure games are pretty much a staple of the genre. When puzzles are integrated well into the experience, the game is almost always the better for it. When puzzles feel simply tacked on, the rest of the game feels like less of a cohesive whole. And I'm here to tell you that the puzzles in Toonstruck, almost universally, are excellent, with many requiring visiting multiple locations, undertaking multiple steps, combining various unrelated objects, and even taking clues from dialogue and your environment to figure out how to proceed. I'd put the puzzle design here up against some of the better games in the retro game genre, with its most direct analog being games like Day of the Tentacle. I'd even offer that some of Toonstruck's puzzles, particularly the multi-part cutifier quest that we talked about before that covers basically the first two-thirds of the game, are likely representative of some of the best puzzle designs you will ever see in an adventure game. Now, that's not to say that it's perfect, and in particular, there are two puzzles that I thought were just a little bit of a stretch. One of those puzzles at least had a basis in a fairly popular fairy tale, so you could kind of surmise the solution to that one. The other puzzle, however, is one that is simply unnecessary given the other options available to you at the time you encounter it. I'm being intentionally vague here to avoid spoilers, but if anyone is interested in learning more about the specific puzzles that I'm referring to, feel free to shoot me a note and we can discuss. Otherwise, though, the game plays great, it controls great, and it is a worthwhile experience from beginning to end. So overall, how did Toonstruck feel to play? Well, for me, playing Toonstruck was a breath of fresh air. It represents a high-quality, well-designed adventure game experience that feels timeless. It was both instantly recognizable, given it followed traditional adventure game frameworks, while also being wholly unique, given its setting, characters, story, and overall quality of acting and animation. All of this combined together to create an experience that feels unforgettable, and I honestly can't speak highly enough about how good it felt to play this game. So overall, what is our verdict? I'm going to be very blunt. Toonstruck is one of the best adventure games of all time. I am surprised. I am. I regret that I never played it before. But it is one of the best adventure games of all time. And I have played a ton of adventure games over my lifetime. So this opinion isn't coming from a place of limited perspective. The simple fact is... Toonstruck exceeds expectations at every turn, and it is one of my deepest regrets that I never played the title until just a couple weeks ago. The team that created the title effectively out LucasArts, LucasArts, creating an experience that stands toe-to-toe with Lucas's best titles and even surpasses them. Truly, this is an exquisite adventure title. It probably goes without saying but Toonstruck absolutely belongs in our pantheon of classic gaming. And even further, it belongs on the Mount Rushmore of adventure games in general. 
This is a title that you should not miss. If you're like me and you thought, it's probably good, I'll get around to it eventually, don't delay any further. You owe it to yourself to play this one. Savor it, enjoy it, laugh at it. It truly delivers everything I could want from an adventure title. And for that reason, Toonstruck is our newest member in our pantheon of classic gaming. was our episode on Toonstruck. I hope you've all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing, provide feedback, comments, suggestions, or just talk about games and classic technology in general. I would love to hear from you, and there are a few ways you could reach out. I do have an email address, which is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com. I have a Twitter account with the handle at classicgamingt, and we also have a Discord server with the link in the show notes. Discord is probably the best way to engage with the rest of the community and myself. You can certainly feel free to send me a note in any mechanism or any way that you see fit, but Discord is pretty much the spot for this podcast. Also, like I mentioned earlier, we will be launching our Patreon next week at the beginning of August I'm excited about that. I can't wait to share more details about that next week, during next week's episode. Before we sign off for the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is going to be focused on Crash Bandicoot, so feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond or not-so-fond memories of that title. At the same time, I recognize you're probably listening to this podcast on any number of podcast services, so if you would feel so inclined, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. This is not about bolstering star counts. It's not about trying to harvest a ton of five-star reviews, though if that happens, awesome. That means we're doing something right. No, what it's really all about is trying to get the feedback necessary in order to make sure that I'm creating the best possible podcast I can and also creating the podcast that everybody wants to listen to. The only way to do that is to get some feedback, understand where we might have some gaps or areas to address possible opportunities for improvement. We continuously grow. We continue to develop the community. We literally get new listeners every single day, which is awesome. And I want to make sure that I am delivering the best possible podcast for all of us. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Crash Bandicoot. Until then, remember, sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone.
Thank you.